I think Democrats have shown in elections that when they focus on core issues, and I'd say reproductive rights is a core issue, that they can win. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Billy Rogers, runs a company called Advanced Micro-Targeting that, among other things, gathers political signatures to qualify candidacies and ballot initiatives. Billy hails from a prominent political family in Texas and has a long history in politics, including as campaign manager for Gary Morrow. I really enjoyed hearing his story, how he built this firm, and how he distinguishes it from others in this space. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Billy Rogers of Advanced Micro-Targeting. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Billy, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Billy Rogers. I'm the founder of Advanced Micro-Targeting. We're one of the largest signature collection firms in the country. My uh, background in politics, it's really in my DNA. My mother was one of the founders of the Texas Women's Political Caucus. My father was communications director for the Texas AFL-CIO, so it's really been in my blood since I was born. In era when Texas was a democratic state. A very democratic state. You know, my first real experience as a volunteer in a political campaign uh, was Jimmy Carter's campaign in 1976. And my mom was for Fred Harris. My dad was for Fred Harris. Yes. <laughs> my father was for Lloyd Benson because the AFL-CAO in Texas had endorsed Lloyd Benson. I just liked Jimmy Carter, what I read, and went down to the headquarters and did volunteer work, mostly stuffing envelopes and making phone calls. And Carter wound up winning Texas, won 92 out of 98 of the delegates of the National Convention in the primary election. And the state director at the time was John Poland, who was 22 years old and running Jimmy Carter's campaign. And we developed a great friendship. And John invited me to the Democratic National Convention at the age of 14. And from that point forward, I was pretty well sold on it. Quite the experience being 14 years old and going to New York, essentially unchaperoned. Tell me about uh, John Poland. John Poland, he was uh, involved in Gary Hart's campaign in 1988. He was an activist. Uh, he probably got the job because at the time, everybody in Texas was for Lloyd Benson. And John ran a great campaign. And um, 
we hit it off. We had a mutual love of baseball. Every night after Pony League game, I'd go in and volunteer. And besides politics, uh, we talked about baseball a lot. He seemed to be really impressed that I read the box scores. <laughs> what position did you play? I played first base. Uh, are you are you a lefty? A lefty, yeah. Yep. Yep. yeah. Well, that seems pretty well qualified from the get-go for politics. I'm curious about that convention as a 14-year-old. I've been to the state convention in Colorado for heart in 84, but I have never been to a national convention. I kind of feel like someone should invite me someday. But <laughs> what was it like? Tell me about that. It was one of those experiences of a lifetime. One night I got a delegate badge and got on the floor of the Democratic National Convention at age 14 with a delegate badge and was actually asked to vote on some platform issue. I didn't really know how to vote, so I said, well, let me go ask Harry Hubbard, who was the president of the Texas AFL-CIO, and I found Harry, and he told me how to vote, and I came back to tell him how I was going to vote, and the person looked at me and said, you're not a delegate, you're a kid. <laughs> Did you have the beard you have now? Uh, no, I did not. <laughs> I had a big afro then. <laughs> Very big hair then. So, so 14, you still got a lot of maybe middle school and high school yet. Did you continue to do politics through that time? Yeah, I did. I got my first political job, paying job. I left the University of Texas my junior year and worked for Gary Morrow, who was 33 years old and running for Texas land commissioner and a real long shot in the race. And I was a travel aide. We went to almost all of the 254 counties in Texas. He'd go in and hit the courthouse, and I'd put leaflets on all the cars and put signs on telephone poles. It was a three-way race, and out of more than a million votes in the primary, a 1,000 votes separated the three candidates. And we wound up barely making the runoff and then winning the runoff election. And Gary was land commissioner for 16 years. I also ran his re-election campaign for Texas land commissioner in 1986. And then when he ran for governor in 1998, I ran that campaign for him as well. So what did you learn from Gary starting as the travel aide and, and all those years, which you must have been close if you were running his campaigns? Uh, capacity for work. Gary really taught me how important working hard and working smart is in a campaign. I think what Gary also taught me was, you know, you can achieve your dreams if you work hard enough. I mean, nobody gave Gary a shot. My dad said I was insane to go to work for Gary. Looking back in hindsight, he was running against a state senator and a state representative, and Gary had been former executive director of the Democratic Party, had never held uh, any kind of elective office before. And Gary used to preach capacity for work, that if you want to achieve things in politics, you have to be willing to work for it. You know, I was at the University of Texas at the time majoring in smoking weed. Gary really um, had a major impact on me just in terms of my general work ethic and that optimism that I think is real important, that, that we can do this. Um, you know, one of the our, our mantras in our firm is impossible is nothing. And we've got the old Muhammad Ali poster up on the wall. And, and it reminds us that, you know, that, you know, you can achieve dreams if you work hard enough, not all the time, 
but you certainly can if you work hard. What is working hard and smart in a campaign? What does that constitute? Well, I think smart is, my dad used to say, there are only two things to do in a campaign that are worthwhile. And if it doesn't get you votes or it doesn't raise your money, don't do it. The working smart part is remembering in a political campaign who your audience is and what it takes to win an election and focusing like a laser on that. And then, of course, money is important in political campaigns. You can't, you know, you can't run a campaign if you don't have any money. And that's a big piece of running a campaign. I did my first real fundraising in 1985 when Ann Richards was state treasurer. I was her fundraising director for her re-election campaign. She wound up running unopposed. And we just sat across the desk and I had little three by five note cards with the names of people who could contribute with dollar amounts that we thought we should ask for. And we just sit down every day and she'd get on the phone and do it and raised enough money to get any serious opposition out of the way on the Republican and Democratic side in 1986. She went unopposed. I certainly understood at an early age, the importance of money in politics and that, you know, if you can't raise money, it's pretty hard to get your message out. I kind of imagine Ann Richards being a pretty good fundraiser. Was she? I think she was, ultimately. I think back in those days, she hated it, as mm. most politicians do. Yeah. She'd say, why am I calling this banker? <laughs> and I'd say, because, you know, this banker deposits a lot of money in the state. Very few politicians that I've worked with really enjoy the process of raising money, uh, but she was very good at it. And she was funny. It wasn't just a phone call, gee, can you give me money? Anne might be on the phone for 20 or 30 minutes, and it was always enjoyable uh, to sit across that desk from her. I remember we went on a fundraising trip. This was in um, 87. We went to New York. We met Donald Trump back when he was a Democrat. On that trip, I just remember the ease with which she had walking walking into that office. I, of course, I was nervous and young and afraid. I had the, the good fortune just to kind of sit back and, and, and watch them. And uh, I think we came out of that meeting with a $1,000 check, but she did it all with charm. You know, and, and at the time, Donald Trump didn't really know Ann Richards. She was a state treasurer in Texas. She hadn't even given the speech at the 1988 convention. Did you come to any opinion about Trump from that small meeting? <laughs> Ann asked him about what he thought about legalizing casino gambling in Texas. And typical Trump, as I remember, the answer was, oh, it would be a horrible idea. Because in New Jersey, all the teachers are quitting their jobs to become blackjack dealers. <laughs> Just typical. He may have known of one or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But no, a terrible, a terrible idea because all the teachers would leave the profession to go to work in the casinos. In these years when you were running campaigns and staffing campaigns, what was your view of political consultants? That's an interesting question. You know, in Gary's campaign, we didn't have one. We really didn't have a general consultant when he ran for governor. Roy Spence, who was one of the founders of GSTNM Advertising in Austin, 
did our television commercials, and Roy's a great guy and one of the most creative human beings on the planet. So my experience with Roy was certainly always great. I haven't worked in a lot of campaigns where you had dominant consultants. I was only involved in Ann's governor's race for a short time. My mother ran her campaign in 1990 and 1994. And even in that campaign, that campaign, while you had consultants in that campaign, I wouldn't call it a consultant-heavy campaign. My mom was a, a pretty strong campaign manager, a good alter ego to Ann. Jack Martin was the chair of that campaign. I think a lot of campaigns are consultant-driven, but my experience, particularly in my first 20 years of politics, wasn't involved in a lot of consultant-driven campaigns. What did you think of your mom as a campaign manager, and how did you guys talk about that as you were kind of sometimes doing similar work? Well, I think she's brilliant. I look at what my mom was able to accomplish in her life, from raising two little kids to becoming uh, chief of staff to the governor of Texas. It's pretty extraordinary. I think my mom has a very good way with managing people. And one of the things that, that she told me, or she actually she told a friend of mine, but I've, I've always remembered is, is don't ever mistake my kindness for weakness. And I think she has a very, um, I'd, I'd say a gentle management style, yet firm. I think she is brilliant. She was a journalism major at the University of Texas. She reads, she, she's 83 years old. Today, we, we talk all the time and we talk about politics a lot. You know, I think with both my parents and growing up in a political family, what they instilled in me was the desire to be part of something much bigger than myself. And my early memories in childhood were my parents' political activity. I remember marching with the farm workers in San Antonio when we lived in San Antonio. I remember Ralph Yarbrough's campaign for U.S. Senate his re-election campaign when Lloyd Benson beat him in the Democratic primary. It was such a heartbreaking blow to liberals in Texas. Particularly from my father, he told me once, we're not supposed to win. So when we do win, enjoy it. They came up in San Antonio politics and a lot of their activism was, you know, voting rights for Hispanic voters in Bear County. Their own political foundation was forged in, in, in those days in San Antonio before we moved to Austin. Some of my earliest childhood memories of six years old, I remember the day that Martin Luther King was killed. I remember how it affected my parents. I remember when Bobby Kennedy was shot and the absolute grief that I saw in my parents. And I, you know, even at that age, certainly felt it. And I remember my parents' strong opposition to the Vietnam War. It was a core value. I remember, you know, my mom's early activity in the women's liberation movement in the late 60s and early 70s. And I see what all that activism produced and all the people who put in that time and hard work. It really goes back to the work ethic. It didn't just happen. 
You know, it didn't happen in a chat room or it didn't happen on Twitter. It happened from real grassroots organizing. I was in Austin when Ann Richards, you know, we'd moved to Austin. My mom worked to help elect Ann Richards to county commissioner in Travis County in Austin and Ann beat the establishment candidate. So you, you got the sense that, that it could be done. Two years prior to Ann winning, Sarah Weddington coming off Roe versus Wade decision won her state representative race in Austin. I had this sense growing up and and watching my parents' involvement in politics and through my own involvement in politics that impossible is nothing. That if you do work hard enough and if you do believe that that you've certainly got a chance at, at success. Austin was not the liberal blue bastion in the early 1970s that it, that it is today. Where do you locate yourself in the sort of political spectrum now, similar to where your parents are or different? I'd say center, center left. What we try to do in our company is kindness is one of the core values. There's also a pragmatic side, though. And I think, you know, having built a business over the years on some things, you can't be so idealistic. I mean, there you have to keep the doors open. And, you know, as we've grown through the years, I think my business experience might have brought me a little bit more to the center on some of those issues. But on the core issues of all the things I've done in my life, what probably made my mom most proud was getting the reproductive rights initiative on the ballot in Ohio, which we were fortunate enough to have been able. The one that just passed. Yeah, the one that just passed. We were the sole vendor on that project, and we were able to get it done in three months. There were a lot of people who thought you could get that many signatures that quickly. We got uh, between volunteer efforts and our own efforts, more than 700,000 signatures in less than three months. And that's really where, you know, the impossible is nothing mantra kicks in. We just believed that we could do it. And that's certainly a core issue for, for me. I certainly had an early awareness of abortion rights growing up in my family, certainly understood the importance of it. And we were very fortunate to have been a part of that effort. Of all the different sort of areas where one could build a political consulting company, I don't think signature gathering jumps out as the first place that someone with your background and talents would have gone to. What's the story about how that started? Well, it's really accidental. The first petition drive I ever did was the Marijuana Policy Project wanted to legalize marijuana in Nevada in 2002. And I had no idea what I was doing, but they asked us to do it. Who was us at the time? It, it was me. They, they sent me. At, at the time, I was doing state lobbying for the Marijuana Policy Project on medical marijuana issues around the country. And the executive director had asked me to go to Nevada to find a consulting firm that could do a signature gathering effort. And I went and I thought I had a firm lined up and they backed out the last minute. And Rob says, well, why don't you just do it? And so we had like 30 days. I uh, 
recruited some people who I knew, who knew much better how to do it. I brought in Ed Windler. Ed was Gary's law partner. At the time, Ed was about 72 years old, but Ed was always, boy, he had a, he had a huge heart and always was energized by being around young people. I called Ed, I said, I don't know how to do this. And Ed was big on field programs. And I'd always kind of thought of, at that time, field programs as black hole in political campaigns. And so I asked Ed to come out to Vegas and help us put it together. And in 30 days, we got about 150,000 signatures and qualified it for the ballot and worked 20-hour days. (laughs) That has got to be the most unusual example of a college major in smoking weed working out. Yeah. Well, you know, we used to talk about it, and I would smoke weed in probably 35 years, but we'd sit around in our dorm room smoking weed and say, boy, when we're going to grow up, we're going to legalize it. <laughs> and, and damn, we did. <laughs> it took a little delay there, but it's, yeah, it's, it's come a along, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in 02, you know, the state and the state of Nevada, the country really wasn't ready for it. But, you know, 10 years later, uh, um, it, you know, country certainly was ready for it. And we just, we did the marijuana legalization initiative in Ohio and got that on the ballot and it just passed. So. You organized that many signatures in that particular race. That's a long stretch from that to deciding, I assume it's a long stretch, to deciding I, I can build a firm around this and this is something I'm going to dedicate a considerable portion of my life to. Tell me about the steps going forward there. Um, there was no business plan. I've never been comfortable with any kind of self-promotion. My mom's side of the family is Sicilian. And the mantra in her family was don't draw attention to yourself. And so I was never really very comfortable in self-promotion. We were asked to do a petition drive. And, and I dropped doing petitions, I think, in '04. It was just too hard. And we'd done some stuff in Nevada. In 2015, we were asked to do a petition drive in Montana for Marcy's Law. And I just decided to go ahead and do it again. That led to doing a major effort in 2017 for Marcy's Law in Ohio, where we really kind of learned how to do a big project. I think we got about 450,000 signatures in four months. And then from there, we've just kind of grown organically. We did some election reform stuff over the last eight years. You know, anybody who asks us to do something, we try to figure out a way to do it. We've done literally wet, dry elections in small towns in Texas to learn how to do it. I think what I was committed to in doing it was doing it a little bit differently. Most of the firms in our space pay by the signature and hire 1099 contractors to do the job and generally in a lot of cases screw them out of money i believe as a company that at a minimum we ought to follow the laws the labor laws which is everybody who works for us is an employee and that means we pay social security medicare medicaid taxes it also means in every state that we operate we pay unemployment taxes and that's important because this can be seasonal work. And, you know, there's generally 
about a three to six month period between the end of a even numbered year and the beginning of an odd numbered year where it's very slow. And just by virtue of the fact that we pay into state unemployment funds in every state that we go into, when we do have to lay off people, they're able to collect unemployment, which they're not able to do with other firms. The other thing that we do in our company that's important to me is providing health insurance to people. And we pay 100% of the premium. It's important to me. And I think part of it may be that I went working in campaigns as a 1099 contractor. I don't think I had health insurance until I was 45 years old. I was fortunate. It sounds like you were. Uh, Very fortunate. But that's kind of the 1099 world. I mean, I just remember the first insurance policy, health insurance plan I ever got. Um, It was kind of a big deal. And so I, I just, I thought that was important for the folks who work in our company, that we provide that level of security as well. What what do you like about this niche? Um, it's quantifiable. There's no bullshit. You either get the signatures or you don't. In a lot of political campaigns, who knows if that digital ad really worked or not? Who knows if they really knocked on those doors? In petitions, you know, because the state verifies every single signature or they run a random sample in some states. But you just can't bullshit. You either do it right or you don't make it. And so I like that, that we can quantify everything. I like that in a petition, you know, we do our own internal verification, that we know where we are at every step of the process. One of the things that I believe in is radical transparency. Everything we see internally, we share with our clients. And if we have a bad day, our clients know we have a bad day. If we have a good day, our clients know we have a good day. That transparency, particularly in the petition business, is a little bit different than the political business. Um, and, and in politics, you know, you kind of have a gut feeling, well, this will work or that'll work, but you don't always really know. What kind of tech solutions do you use to provide that transparency and to put order to the workforce? Yeah, again, uh, I'm just very fortunate. I um, hired a couple back in 2002 to help with the marijuana legalization campaign, and they both happened to have technology skills, Dan and Kat Wisnowski. And so when I started this company, we created a little IT department and created they created the software for us to be able to provide these reports. It's way above my pay grade. All I know is it's magic and that I can log in and know how many valid signatures every single petitioner has. We have an app that all of our petitioners use where they're reporting the number of signatures that they've collected every 30 minutes during the course of the day so we can track progress. Is this location working or not. But no, Dan and Kat through the years have really, I mean, it's a phenomenal IT infrastructure that we have. We pretty much built it from scratch. No external vendors for that? We recently brought in an external vendor to help upgrade some of our technology, but no, the 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 framework was 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 built internally and really built with an eye towards what 
a field operation needs, what clients need to see. And we're very transparent in, in all of our reporting. How big is the core company and then when it expands out to? Yeah, we have about 80 salary employees, administrative and field management. We have an HR department. We have a payroll department. We have a hiring and recruiting department. And then typically our field staff varies depending upon sizes of projects. But typically in petition season, we're in the range of four to 800 employees. And, and generally, as you get closer to a lot of these state deadlines, that's when you know clients will call in and say, hey, we're in a bind in this state. Can you help us get over the top? Or, or we just decided at the last minute that you know we want to get 500,000 signatures. Can you do it in two months? How does it do as a business? It's uh, like a grocery store. <laughs> it's low margin. <laughs> it creates management challenges. You really have to focus on productivity. We don't pay by the signature. So we have to watch productivity for the amount of revenue that we bring in. Generally, a, a pretty low margin business. It's not like general consulting. How do you see the competitive landscape, the other firms that also do this? I think some of them are outlaws. I think there's some firms out there that are trying to do it right. Who do you put in those categories? I'm not, I, I, I wouldn't. I when I say outlaws, I'd say the, the hired guns out there. The firms that will hire 1099 contractors, they may get a project in Missouri, for example, and they tell the client it's going to cost this much money. And then they're like, oh, well, there's a better project in California and all of our people are going to leave unless we triple the price. One of the things we do is our price is our price. If we can't manage it, that's our problem, not your problem. The firms that you hold in higher regard, who, who are they? I think firms that are not paying by the signature. I think firms that abide by state laws, and that means, you know, taxes, unemployment taxes. Those are the firms that are trying to do it right. I think it's hard, though. And I think what happens with some firms is they'll start off with a, an employee-based model, and then they get in a bind and they have to go hire the 1099 contractors. It's competitive. I don't think in this industry there's really any standards. I think what helped us get our foot in the market were clients who shared our values who believed that, that firms ought to follow the law, that they ought to provide a workers' comp policy, that they ought to pay into the tax system, that employers should provide health insurance and treat their employees fairly. That was our pitch because when we uh, started out, we weren't the cheapest. What has surprised you the most about this as a job of vocation? I don't know. I think I'm really humbled by the folks who work in this company and make it happen. Really humbled in that we we have people in our company who've been with us from day one. That's kind of rare. I think that says a lot about the company that we've built, that we've created family. When you're hiring, what do you look for in a person? Yeah, on a petition, somebody who's unafraid. If, if you're circulating a petition 
80% of the people are going to walk by you and not say a word, ignore you. It takes an extrovert. It takes somebody who is not afraid to approach people. It takes somebody who can handle rejection, and you get it a lot during the course of the day, get away from me, particularly if you're working on a controversial issue. In Ohio, a lot of people had unpleasant encounters with pro-lifers out there. So definitely people who can handle that, but also it helps to have people who are passionate about the issue. You know, when we started Ohio, there were folks within our company who were extraordinarily passionate about it. And that certainly made a difference. It, it always does. You know, when you're doing something for maybe a, a non-partisan issue, which might be like sports gambling or something like that, you might not get the passion among the people within the company that you would on an issue like reproductive rights. I, right before I came over to interview you, I was taking a walk with a friend and he, what he was talking about was irritating me. So I'm going to ask you about it. He was railing about Democrats being willing to just accept Biden as the nominee of the party, not contesting it and or Biden stepping down given his campaigning skills at this point in his life. It's not that I can't see that. I could argue either side of it, honestly, in, in a different situation. But I'm curious, you as a longtime political professional, how you see that. I mainly ask that because the stakes are so much different in this election than they hardly have ever been, except maybe the last one. Well, how do you think about that? I think it's a terrible choice right now for voters because I think it gets away from the issues. I didn't really understand Trump's victory in 2016 until I got to Ohio in 2017. What I saw in Ohio were people my age who looked like me, who had had good paying jobs, good paying union jobs, and they were working in a fast food restaurant. I understood the anger. I worry about Trump being reelected. I just wish we had somebody better that wasn't trailing in the polls right now. And somebody who could speak, maybe in the end, it all works out. I think Democrats have shown in elections that when they focus on core issues, and I'd say reproductive rights is a core issue, that they can win. We see it. We, we do initiatives for minimum wage. We just did Alaska and just finished up up there. If you're focusing on those kinds of issues, yeah, I think Democrats win. But if it gets off into other issues, what I've seen is I don't think there's been an acknowledgement of how hard inflation is on people. I think you can get pretty insulated in Washington or wherever you are. Or just if you're prosperous enough that you can absorb it. Prosperous, yeah, yeah. you don't yeah. feel it. But that's one of the things that we hear all the time. It doesn't matter where you go. I mean, it, it can be a fast food. Whataburger, being a Texan, would be my gauge when, you know, a large water meal started costing more than 10 bucks, I noticed. I'm not sure that there's really been an acknowledgement about how that's affecting people. Because you have two generations now 
who've never experienced inflation. We grew up with it. I remember when gas topped a dollar a gallon and I'm making three thirty an hour. That's the big issue out there. Maybe it resolves itself before November. You certainly see it, you hear it in, in projects that, that we've done door to door. It's the number one issue out there. And until that issue gets resolved, I think it's going to be tough, tough for Biden. I do think with Trump, I think if you look at the polls right now, people generally think they were better off under Trump than Biden. And I think that's something that's got to be dealt with. And I look at Nixon, one of the reasons it was easy to get rid of him was because the economy wasn't doing so hot. When the impeachment came down on Bill Clinton, the economy was going pretty good and voters certainly didn't care. And I'm just wondering with Trump, if there's that sense in voters' minds that, well, things were better under Trump and I can put aside all this other stuff. I hope that's not the case. I think it'd be awful uh, for this country, but I think it's got to be dealt with. Well, as a former multiple time campaign manager, if you were in the room to try to think about how to quote unquote deal with it, what would you advise? Well, I think a laser focus on reproductive rights. I think telling that story. Clearly, I think the numbers show that's how you win Pennsylvania. That's how you win Michigan. That's how you go win Wisconsin. That's the only thing that worries me about that is I just remember the Udall re-election in Colorado where I felt like they overly focused on that and they lost that seat. I don't know if you remember that one. Yeah. And, and I, f- I feel like presidency is bigger than, I agree that that's a, that plays our direction, but I wonder if you don't need something more yeah. alongside it. Yeah. I, I think you do. I think you need an acknowledgement. Number one, just an acknowledgement. I know it's hard for people. And this is what we're doing to try to make it better. And and maybe you catch a break and maybe interest rates start coming down in June. Well, I don't think inflation is currently running too high. It's more that some prices built up over time and are higher than they used to be. I think they've got inflation under control. And in fact, so many measurements of the economy are quite positive for the incumbent. If you look at those models of of presidential elections that are based on the economy and maybe opinion. I don't know how it would come out right now, but I but I think by traditional measures, it might indicate a re-election. I think if interest rates are coming down, I think if people don't feel inflation, I think right now it's more the comparison to what am I paying now versus what did I pay two or three years ago? And maybe that goes away. You don't know. One of the other things out there is the price of housing. I mean, and, and and what interest rates have done. I mean, pretty much locked people into homes. If you're young and, and you're trying to buy a home, it's tough right now. And maybe some of those things resolve themselves. With Trump, everybody knows what Trump is. I, I, I think so. I don't think anybody, you know, left, right, center, you know, has any illusions about Trump. I just think a substantial portion of the electorate doesn't care. That may be true. I think that there are certainly a lot of different lenses and information 
bubbles that people are coming to a view of him through that are widely disparate. Maybe that fits with what you're saying also, I'm not sure. When you think about politics and your company, where do you want to take it over the next while? Are you wanting to go to all the way to retirement running this thing? Do you want to pass it on? Do you want to sell it? What are you thinking about your future? No, I, I don't want to sell it. We had an offer a few years ago, a couple, two or three years ago, to sell it. And I knew what they do. You know, they come in and cut and fire people. I'm okay with a low margin. I think we provide a, a good work environment where, for the most part, I think people feel secure. I think security is real important. I can't imagine ever not working. My mom's 83 years old and she's working on her sixth book. I can't imagine giving this up. I enjoy waking up every morning. I enjoy the challenges. It's never boring. It's never easy. And I kind of like that in my life, but, but I also really like what, what we've been able to create here. And I was talking to my, to my stepkid the other day, Mick. He's 20 years old and he went through COVID and trying to figure out what he wants to do. And I said, I want you to come work in the company and learn it. And he says, I don't want to be a Nepo baby. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Which I kind of like that. <laughs> All right, right on, man. I think we've built something special, and I'd like to continue continue doing it. I think we do a good job. I mean, I think that's the other thing that we do and, and we take pride in is we, we just try to do a good job. Well, there's a lot of satisfaction in that in, in any endeavor, I'd say. Yeah. 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 What should I have asked you that I failed to? <laughs> I don't know. I think you've covered it. Well, it's been great to talk to you. I, I appreciate hearing, hearing yeah. your stories and getting to know you a little bit. Is there anything else you want to say? Uh, well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I think was, this is not something that I uh, normally do, or, or I'll, I'll confess to not being entirely comfortable. <laughs> uh, but you, you seem uh, you seem plenty comfortable to me. But, but thank you for getting me out of my cave, and, <laughs> and and I've enjoyed it. And thank you very much. That was Billy Rogers. He's at advancedmicrotargeting.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.